Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue in our series. Uh, This morning we come to verses 1 through verse 5 of Paul's letter to Timothy. Hear now the word of God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, even as we ask you for bread, the bread of your word, the bread of your son, would you answer our prayer in truth? Even as we ask for bread, do not give us a stone. Give us soft hearts to receive your word. Use your gospel to strengthen the weak arms and to lift up weary heads and to touch our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day when the perceived influence and importance of the church, especially in the West and in the part of the world where we live, is diminishing. I know that's not a shocking thing for me to say. There's nothing scandalous about me saying that in the Pacific Northwest, uh, that the church is seen as increasingly optional and irrelevant to people's lives. Um, Another word that sometimes we use for people exiting the church, turning their back on Christ, is the word apostasy. That's the word that we use. Um, I could imagine somebody being very discouraged by this reality, by the, the reality of apostasy, by the reality that people do leave the church, they do abandon Christ, Um, and uh, especially if you know some who have committed apostasy, some of those who have renounced Jesus. I know several, I could count on a couple of hands, and I suspect most of you could as well. And what I find myself thinking, especially in times like this, where you, you learn about friends, you learn about loved ones who have said, I don't care about the church or Jesus or, or God or the scriptures. In fact, I don't believe at all. What you oftentimes find is this incredible need for perspective. Uh, when this sad reality closes in, we really need to have perspective and we need to know how to think about these sorts of things. And so when we come to this part of, of Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul has been, has been working to prepare Timothy for this Hard re- these hard realities that are ahead for him as he's serving this church in Ephesus. And, and then we get to this moment where Paul is laboring to help Timothy to, to put apostasy that he's witnessing into perspective. Um, here's this young man. He's ministering. He's serving in a place. It's a hard place. It's a city that's filled with idols. It's a city. Uh, it's a, a, an, an oceanside city. It's a place for sailors. It's a place where It's hard soil. It's hard soil to minister in. And he's getting him ready for the fact that you are going to see people who seem to take root, like in that parable Jesus told of the the parable of the soil, where you're going to see some of those seeds fall, and you're going to see people immediately take root, and they're going to look so promising. 
And then very quickly, the cares of this world are going to steal them away. And he's getting Timothy ready to see this in practice. It's not just a parable that Jesus tells. It's something that happens. It's real. Now, how does Paul get him ready for that? Well, he tells him that the errors that he is dealing with were specifically predicted by God. Uh, He wants him to know these departures from the faith are not a bug in the system. They are a feature. They're a part of the plan. Uh, He tells Timothy that, in fact, the Holy Spirit had spoken to God's people before and prepared the church for this coming day where errors would be taught and errors would be promulgated and people would follow and people would believe them. And he's getting him ready for this. In other words, he wants Timothy to know that the apostasy that that is going on and the apostasy that's going to happen is predictable and it is part of the plan of God. These errors, these, these problems, they don't catch God by surprise. They catch us by surprise. They always catch us by surprise. And God is not shocked by these things. And, and in a lot of ways, what you're reading here is, is Paul making the case to Timothy that God's not surprised. I sometimes think we're very slow to appreciate this truth. You know, whenever we encounter problems or errors or troubles, we just need to pause And we need to put things into perspective. We have to remember, yes, we are shocked. We are shocked because we live a linear experience, one moment at a time, one after the other. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. I think this was a week of surprises, right? Globally, people were surprised by things that happened overseas. People were saying, oh, this isn't going to happen. There's not going to be a war. And then there was. Something about remembering that these things are not accidents and these things don't catch God by surprise, there is a help to us. There's meant to be a help by design so that somebody who's in your shoes, somebody who's in in my shoes, certainly someone who's in Timothy's shoes, uh, can stand in confidence and take a deep breath when it's tempting to forget God and remember that he is there and that he is not surprised by disasters or in this case, errors, because even the errors fit into the plan of God. And so Paul reinforces the fact that this doesn't surprise God. And so let's get more specific about what's happening in Ephesus. And these are going to be our points this morning. First, Paul tells us about the deception of apostasy. Second, he tells us about the demands of false teachers. And then third, he reminds us in response to these things of the delightfulness of creation. Um, so even as he's, as he's giving these, this high-level perspective, right, this God's eye perspective on these events that are so upsetting to us, he's also getting specific about the errors that are being taught and specifically responding to them. And so let's see what we can learn by how these problems are addressed in the text today. Uh, first, Paul sets before Timothy the, the deception of apostasy. Just look at the first two verses again. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I mean, I use the term apostasy here. I use the term apostasy to to describe what Paul is talking about here. I base that terminology on the text. When you're looking in the text, you see that phrase where it says, some will depart from the faith. Well, the Greek word there is the Greek word apostasantai, 
which if you try to turn that into an English word, you can very easily do it. It's the word we get for apostasy. The, the root of the word apostasy is a Greek word, apostasantai. And the word means to flee, it means to revolt, it means to withdraw from something, uh, anything. But in this case, he's specifically talking about the faith. He's saying some people are going to apostasantai, says Paul. Some are going to revolt and leave the faith. Now, what's interesting to me is what Paul says about why they leave the faith and what they leave the faith for. So do you notice this? First, he, he says that they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Uh, I take these to be equivalent phrases. To do one is, is to do the other. They mean the same thing. Uh, the person who abandons the faith, the person who commits apostasy, doesn't just stop believing a message. Uh, they start believing an alternative message from an alternative messenger. Uh, in other words, they leave the message of the gospel for some other alternative. They don't just going from a bias towards Christianity to a neutral position. He's not saying that, that the, uh, the person who disbelieves in Christianity is this open-minded, neutral individual. No, he's saying they actually go from one position to another. They go from believing one thing to believing a different thing. There's no neutral position here where someone just doesn't believe anything, where they're a, a blank slate. Um, there is no neutral position. You know, we always believe something. Even if we're lazy, even if we're thoughtless about it, we, we believe things about the world, and we believe things about ourselves. Again, uh, I think many Americans think of themselves as open-minded, and really, they just aren't thoughtful about their worldview. They think they're open-minded, but they really just aren't thinking about what they believe. Um, they still believe something, uh, but, but, but many of their beliefs aren't carefully considered. And so they sort of just absorb the culture around them, and they don't think much about what that culture around them actually says or believes. But that is still a worldview. So they, they leave the gospel, and when they, they leave the gospel, they don't just stop believing anything. They go for the alternative belief system and message, even if they're lazy about it, they do. So they stop believing one thing, they start to believe another. And second, he says, they come to believe these erroneous messages through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So what he's saying is, no, they didn't see a demon appear in front of them. Um, it, you know, the modern people like to make fun of the idea of the devil being a figure with the, the pitchfork and the, the horns and the red suit. Um, nothing like that. That's not what Paul is, is saying. They didn't see a demon. He's saying instead that they heard a person. They heard a messenger. They heard someone talk to them, a human person. And that human person was speaking lies about God, and they believed the lie. And he's saying that's how someone devotes themselves to the teaching of demons. They do it through a very real, in-person messenger. Right? There is someone who is teaching and saying these things. See, the belief in falsehood, it turns out, is a deeper spiritual issue than someone might think. Presbyterians, I think, sometimes have a, a reputation for being rationalistic. Uh, for being so rationalistic, we almost could be accused of minimizing the spiritual realities of the world around us, uh, minimizing the fact that spiritual warfare is a real aspect of life. Uh, let me dispense with that uh, right now. 
Paul is saying that, the spirit, that spiritual truth is not just a matter of raw ideas and reason winning out over falsehood. It goes deeper than just presenting the logic and winning an argument. It's not just about the truth. It's about whether we love the truth. And that love, that battle to love the truth, is a spiritual battle, ultimately, that is happening behind the scenes, in our own soul, and in the world around us. So there is real spiritual warfare that lies behind our own ideas, our own beliefs, our own loves, our own commitments, our own lifestyles that almost always we are unaware of. Paul occasionally reminds us of these spiritual realities that lie behind our sort of seemingly mundane, straightforward struggles in our daily lives. And he does that in a few places, but one that really stands out that many of you may even know and remember, you may even be thinking of it right now, is Ephesians 6.12, where he reminds us of this. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, I'm glad that, that Paul says this because I am guilty of intellectualizing. And we can be so guilty of, of, of intellectualizing so that these are things that we end up forgetting. We forget that our struggles are ultimately spiritual struggles involving heavenly realities that we can't see with our own eyes, but that God tells us are quite real, just as real as the physical world around us. So you have these two twin affirmations here. First, that, that falsehood is ultimately demonic in origin. And then second that the instruments who are spreading that falsehood are teachers who speak misrepresentations about God. There is a person out there who believes this lie and they want you to go with them in it. That's how falsehood spreads. Now here's what's also striking to me about Paul's discussion here. Paul sees, he sees what we all need to see, which is that apostasy is not just about ceasing to believe in what God has said, Right? When someone leaves the Christian faith, they don't leave it for nothing. They leave it for something else. And Paul, Paul tells us apostasy is not simply ceasing to believe something. It's not about giving up a closed-minded worldview for an open-minded worldview. It is about giving up one worldview for another worldview. It is unavoidable to have a worldview. Deciding to believe a different story about yourself, a different story about the world and, and who you are. A, a message and a story that isn't given to us by God. It came from somewhere, but it didn't come from God. Verse 2 highlights the fact that, that departing from the faith is about who we listen to, not whether we listen to someone. It's about who we listen to. We will... And we do listen to someone. Americans have this sort of obsessive belief in their own singularity and their own autonomy. We think we are so special. We think we are our own person in our arrogance. We forget just how vulnerable and dependent we are on others. Departing from the faith is not really about beginning to think for ourselves. It's about listening to the wrong voice and loving that wrong message. And when these voices tell us to abandon Christ, Paul says we know where the voices really truly come from they come from the spiritual realm from a place that we can't see with our own eyes but that he says is quite quite real 
Now, I was just speaking more generally about apostasy as a phenomenon, as an idea, but in our second point this morning, we see that there's, there's a specific demand in this specific case that the, that these, of these false teachers that Timothy has to deal with. And that appears this, to be the skewed message that teaches extreme self-denial. That's what he's dealing with in this case. Those other principles, they helped us to understand falsehood and all the forms that it takes, but this gets more specific. So look at what Paul is dealing with in verse 3. He says, They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he's talking about asceticism. Asceticism is a belief that denial of physical pleasure or denial of physical desires is going to lead to spiritual health and spiritual flourishing. Uh, Now, there's a grain of truth in asceticism, a grain of truth. Um, The Bible tells us we should be self-controlled. Paul talks about the importance of the Christian disciplining his body to keep it under control. Uh, Paul talks about the weakness of the flesh. He talks about the need for Christians to live in communion with Christ. The New Testament also acknowledges this reality that fasting from food for a time, uh, even abstaining from sex for married couples, he says there's something positive to it because it allows us to focus our time on prayer. Hunger, fasting, allows us to have a time where we say, I'm hungry, and it reminds us to reach out to God and to pray to him. So there's there's a grain of truth in asceticism. We're meant to discipline ourselves. We're meant not to be ruled by our bodies. But here's the problem. You have some people in Ephesus, it seems, they take these biblical impulses towards self-denial and and towards self-discipline. And and they took these good things and they pressed their followers forward to this extreme that was not taught in Scripture. So the two ways this asceticism shows up is in these areas of marriage and food. Uh, First, Paul says they forbid marriage. Uh, We saw this a moment ago. Every lie has some grain of truth in it. Paul actually has a very high view of singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says he wishes everyone could have the gift of singleness. He says, I wish everybody could be like me. Because he says, look, marriage, you get responsibilities. You've got to have a family. If you wanted to translate it into the modern era, you've got to have somewhere to live. You've got to feed your wife. You've got to make sure that your children are taken care of. And suddenly, you are spending less time praying, less time devoted to scripture, and you're spending more time driving the kids to school. Uh, that's all my life is now. It's just Aaron and I driving children to school and looking at the gas prices at the same time, right? Like, that's what you do. And, you know, let's be real. If I was, if I was single and if, uh, and if I didn't have a family and I didn't have any other responsibilities, I'd be a different kind of pastor, right? Um, Paul says he wishes everybody could be like that, but he also recognizes that that's not possible because not everyone has a gift for singleness. And the gift of singleness is not something that's given to everyone. It's not something that's mandated. Um, Notice the language. They, They don't just commend singleness. They don't just encourage singleness. They don't just encourage those who are single and say, and say, trust in God, rest in the Lord, That's not what they're doing. They're actually requiring singleness. See, apparently they require it even of people who seem to not have the gift of singleness. right? Because whatever's happening here is different than what Paul is saying in that other place in 1 Corinthians 7. They're not just saying it would be great if you could be single because you could be more devoted to God. 
Instead, they're going much further than that. Um, and so there has to be a balance here, right? Celibacy is absolutely the order of the day for anyone who's not married yet. But God's design is for people to marry someone of the opposite sex if they have sexual desire. That's God's design. Uh, it is wrong, and in fact, I'll go an extra step. It is cruel to require celibacy of someone who does not have the gift of singleness. You see this really prominently, very visibly in the, the Roman Catholic Church's insistence even today that someone can't be a, a priest in Rome, not that it, priests exist still today, um, not that, that someone can't even be a priest without taking a vow of celibacy. See, they require celibacy, much like what Paul is addressing here. And of course, we have seen the outworkings of forced celibacy. We have seen the sort of problems that it has led to, problems that Luther saw in the day of the Reformation, problems which continue to persist in the Roman Catholic Church, in part because of this insistence on celibacy for people who are not gifted for it. Second, they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Um, this is more than likely a misapplication of the food laws in the Old Testament. In other words, there is an element of truth in this type of asceticism as well. You know, one of the things that, is, uh, that caused Israel to stand out from the surrounding nations was they had very stringent food laws. When you come to the time after the resurrection, the real turning point comes in the book of Acts chapter 10, where God is showing the apostle Peter that he can have fellowship with Gentiles, even though they're not eating kosher foods. Uh, and then you have Acts 15 where the presbytery meets and, and they, they say they will not require Christians to adhere to the food laws of the Old Testament. And that's the moment where bacon enters our lives, right? Like that's, that's the moment, right? There's a time, uh, there's a time when God's people did have to avoid certain foods. This time when Jews and Gentiles were supposed to be separate, supposed to be distinct, supposed to sit in different places. But now the Holy Spirit comes and what does he do? He tears down that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and that requirement is gone. Every I, I joke about this. I mean, every time I mention Acts 15, bacon comes up. Um, I thank you, Lord, for Acts chapter 15. That's what I say. And then I eat bacon. Um, <laughs> I don't always say it. I, I always eat bacon, but I don't always say that. But my family's heard me say it a few times. Um, see, Paul's dealing with people who, who want to stick with the food laws, even though God has moved on, right? He's moved on from the types and the shadows that are found in the law. And he says, now Jesus has come. He's fulfilled these things. And God tells us, tells Peter three times in Acts chapter 10, what God has made clean do not call common. That's what he says over and over again. Now, I suspect you do not expect people in your life to be kosher. But are there things you regard as evil that God hasn't said are evil? Are there substances, things that you, you tell people they shouldn't, shouldn't have because they can be abused? You know, alcohol is probably the perennial Example: Alcohol is complicated in ways because it can be abused. There, there's a sin of drunkenness spoken of in Scripture. That's a sin. But in the Bible, alcohol is also spoken of as a blessing. It's spoken as, of as a gift. Um, I'm very understanding of someone who has a, a history with alcohol or somebody who suffered at the hands of, of someone else who abused alcohol. Um, 
It isn't wrong even to abstain from alcohol, right? But alcohol is, is too often spoken of in Scripture as a blessing and a joy and a gift, right? Something that's meant to be rejoiced in. It's said too often in the Bible for us to simply require people to abstain from it completely. We should expect moderation. We should not expect total abstinence from it. That's just one example. Um, people can have the same views about things like vegetarianism. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has seasons. I think they have one coming up where people aren't allowed to eat red meat. They can only eat fish. Uh, these are extra-biblical rules about food regarding what God has said are actually good gifts. So the food laws may not exist, but the spirit of that error can still continue if we aren't careful. Food laws are gone. They're not binding on God's people. The requirement that we eat with thankfulness as we enjoy God's gift is not gone. That still continues. So you have these two requirements, right? These two requirements that are being put on people. You have the requirement of celibacy, and you have the requirement of abstaining from certain foods. Um, both of these requirements, you'll notice, have at least some basis in reality, right? They're not made up completely. They're not dreamed up completely out of thin air. The Old Testament really did give God's people food laws. The New Testament really does speak of the advantage of singleness if one is called to it and gifted for it. And yet both of these truths can be taken and twisted and misused. So the question is, why are the ascetics teaching things that are out of keeping with God's design? What motivates this? What drives it? Why are they doing this? Well, Paul pinpoints the problem in our third point. So what's Paul's third point? Well, it's the delightfulness of creation. It's the goodness of creation. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the problem becomes evident in the way that Paul answers here. The problem was not ultimately that these teachers made up extra rules. The problem goes deeper than the extra rules. These teachers had a false view of creation. They thought things could somehow be evil. Uh, this may be a very early version of an error that came to fruit later in the church. There were people who believed that creation itself was bad, that creation itself was sinful, and they said, look, the only way to actually grow spiritually is to disconnect from the world and even disconnect from matter and disconnect from your own body. And so they would do a couple things. One is they would mistreat their bodies. They would starve themselves. They would work themselves to the bone. They would live in miserable conditions. They would live on giant poles in the desert, and people would have to come and wait on them hand and foot. Uh, they, would, they would experience all sorts of physical sufferings that they would put themselves through intentionally. They would say, look, that doesn't matter what happens to our body. In fact, the more terrible things I do to my body, the more closer that I am to being spiritual. But then on the other hand, you also have people who would indulge themselves completely and do whatever they wanted with their body because they would say, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. My soul is pure. I trust in Jesus, but I'm going to live like the devil because it doesn't matter what happens to my body. This body is just like a prison house for the soul, and I'm waiting to escape from it. But until then, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. 
You can see those extreme errors, both of them coming from this bad root of not understanding that we are body and soul. We are people who have bodies. We are body and soul. It's not like our body is a shell or an avatar and that it doesn't matter. See, the false teachers misunderstand this. They, they downplay the body as if it, it can be denied and starved off and the soul can take the place of priority somehow. If you misunderstand human nature, it can lead to all sorts of problems. Notice how did Paul respond to this? He responds by, in essence, taking us to the book of Genesis. What did God say in Genesis 1.31? After he creates all of, of existence... The text says, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So it isn't the physical world that is bad. The, whole, the world is good. It's the entrance of sin into the world that is bad. Sin is bad, not things. Sin is bad. Um, there are not evil things. There are only evil hearts that misuse good things. There's no such thing as an evil substance. You can't hold evil in your hand. You can't touch something and become more evil. There, there is, there's nothing you can handle that would ruin your soul. There are good creations that are twisted by sinful hearts. There are things that you can take and your heart can respond very badly to them. What does Paul say? He says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So that should, that should be our attitude toward things. That, that for the Christian, there are no evil things. There are no evil substances. The things around us are good. They're blessed. If misused, they become harmful. Think of something as simple as food, right? Food is a good uh, food is a blessing. It, it gives life. It gives enjoyment. Uh, and yet you overeat and it can hurt you. If you undereat, it can hurt you. Uh, it's the misuse of the gift that God gives that's the problem. Uh, think of the idea in the context of marriage. Sex even. Sex is good. God created it. It was before the fall. It wasn't like we fell and then he said, okay, well, I guess this has to happen now. He, he said, no, he designed it before, before we fell, before we were bad. Adam and Eve were created to be together, to enjoy each other sexually. It, it, was, it was truly a good thing. And yet even now, we know that sex can be misused and can be abused. It can be twisted from its original design. And when it is, it is harmful and it is sinful. In itself, it, it's a gift. Misused and it ruins in themselves, God's gifts are good, and when they're misused, they can be destructive. But, but Paul's, Paul's point is that in themselves, these things that the ascetics are forbidding, forbidding should not be forbidden. Right? They're good. In, in Jeremiah 2.7, God tells the people, he says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. Why would he, why would he do that if fruits and good things are actually bad? Right? If there are things that God gives to us that actually can ruin us, why would he say that? You got, you later in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul says the, the rich should remember that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Um, God gives gifts and he intends for them to be enjoyed. Now, how are we supposed to enjoy them? We enjoy them in moderation as God intended them by design. 
The answer is not to avoid them. The answer is not to call them bad. The answer is not to proclaim them evil. The answer is to ask, why was this given and how can I use this gift as God has intended it? There are no evil things. There are only evil hearts that misuse good things. There are no evil things, only evil hearts that take God's good things and don't enjoy them with thanksgiving and prayer. Things are not the problem. Things have never been our problem. It is our hearts that are the problem. It's the way our hearts fixate on them that are the problem. This is why Paul says that for the believer, nothing is to be rejected. Later on in 1 Timothy, he's not going to say that money is the root of all evil. He's going to say that the love of money is the root of all evil. What's he doing there? He's getting at the reality that the heart and the way we handle the things that we have is the problem. Because we use things rightly, we use things moderately, they're not to be rejected. God made all things. He called them good. Everything we have is an opportunity to give God glory. And if we won't do that, in the case of the specifics Paul is dealing with, if we decide to judge these things that God has made to be bad, Paul says it's not just a different way of life, a different optional lifestyle. Paul says it's apostasy because it calls God's good creation bad and it calls his grace insufficient. It's a move away from God. It's a move away from his teachings toward the teachings of men. And ultimately, he says, the teaching of demons. The creation is good. Do you believe that? Have you... Have you internalized that? Do you really look out on the creation and see it as good? What does that really mean for your life? Well, it's very practical. It's very practical for us to believe that creation is good. Uh, Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.30. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How can you eat or drink to the glory of God? partial answer is you eat with thanksgiving, right? You eat, and as you're eating, and even before you eat, you think of the creator who made you and made this food, who made this drink possible. Uh, it's so funny to do it, but it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful exercise in gratitude to think of the chain of labor that took to bring that orange to the table in front of you, or even that heavily processed bowl of Fruit Loops that you eat in the mornings. Just imagine what a miracle it is. Um, I know that we, it's like, it's like a rule that we're supposed to talk bad about McDonald's, but do you ever think that it's amazing that for, well, it used to be a dollar. Now for two dollars, <laughs> tomorrow it'll be three. Uh, for two dollars, you can have a meal that would keep a person alive for a day. Just and, and, and it takes so much work to bring all of this stuff together and set it in front of you, even if it is a greasy hamburger. Um, what do you do? You say, God, you are the creator. You made the sun shine down on the crops. The rain fell. You gave us ground to grow it in. That ground has nutrients in it. And, and, and what do we do? You praise God with your mouth. You praise God with your heart. That's how you eat, and that's how you drink to the glory of God. During snack time, after the service, you eat treats and snacks, one apiece, kids. (laughs) Remembering that somebody went to the expense, they made this food, they brought this food so that you could have comfort and a tasty snack and hang out with your friends and not be in a hurry to run home after church, right? 
you, you eat that hamburger or that bacon, and you got to keep talking about bacon. And, and you remember that this animal received nutrients and its life was supported so you'd be able to eat it. There are provisions behind the provisions and under the provisions. That God and his hand are why you live and eat and drink and rejoice. You don't take that gift for granted. How do we enjoy the good things of creation? We do it with thanksgiving and gladness. What does that mean? It means that when we enjoy something, we enjoy it for God's sake. Right, So we, we pray and we thank God. We think theologically about the mundane things of life, the things that we have, the things that we, that we enjoy right now. And we remember God, the creator, as we're doing it. We enjoy the thing. We remember that this is a gift from him. He didn't owe it to us. He gave it to us. We don't eat and drink like atheists. We don't eat and drink like we earned this or we deserve this or like, of course, we're supposed to have it. That's how atheists eat. We eat and drink like dependent creatures who live by his hand at every moment. That is how we enjoy the good things that God gives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we've looked at Paul's own message, his own reflections on apostasy. On the one hand, as, as we ask you for continued grace, that, you, that we would believe the truth. We pray that you would sustain us, that you would preserve us in believing what you've said and what you've told us. And on the other hand, we see the immediate danger Paul is dealing with, people who have denied the goodness of your world. Would you help us to think rightly about your creation? Help us to remember the goodness. In this case, the goodness of food, of marriage, of the gifts that you give. And help us to receive those gifts with thanksgiving and a right attitude. Protect us from error. Protect us from idolizing the creation, idolizing your gifts. But protect us also from hating your gifts, despising your gifts, or misusing your gifts. Help us to reject what is evil and cling to what is good. And help us to love what is good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.